comes from the first letter of Peter, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up at this time uh, to follow along. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in the glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, nor for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you serve each other in humility. For God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share his, in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. Peter, a fellow elder, witness to Christ's suffering, and an heir, one who inherits God's glory. Peter is calling the elders of this developing group of small communities of Christians in Asia Minor. He is calling their elders to willingly serve them, to eagerly serving them, and to be a good role model for them. I remember when I was called into ministry. It was a moment I will not forget. I was in 10th grade, and it was a particular day with particular music, and it was a particular event that I had this deep sense, you might say a whisper of the Holy Spirit, that was telling me that I was going to be an apostle, a, a pastor. When I, when I received that call, I didn't know what to do with it but I let it sit inside of me. As I got older, that was in 10th grade, as I got older, I began to see the responsibility that it was, and I began to ask God, well, could I be something else? I remember suggesting a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, something else, something that, that wouldn't require so much responsibility and accountability. And the answer that I kept getting was no. You're called to be a pastor. 
It was affirmed by many people, people in my church, my home congregation. People would just randomly come up to me and say, Steve, you ought to go to seminary and be a pastor. It was like, ugh, trying to get out of this. You're not helping me. I went to college thinking uh, I could do well in some area of study, other area of study, and I could do that kind of work. No, all my professors kept telling me, you know, you really ought to be a pastor. <laughs> Wherever I went, I kept getting this sense that I was being called into ministry. And today, here I am. My call was affirmed by many people. Most importantly, I think it was, it was affirmed by Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit. Even when I was matriculated, that means when I got enrolled, in a sense, after my first year of seminary, I was now a part of the royal order of pastors, right? Um, when I got enrolled, matriculated, even then at that point it was like, well, this is important, but it's not the same kind of call that I received when I was in 10th grade. That was a really unique and distinct type of call. Well, Peter is addressing those younger people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and several of them who are now being trusted with the care of leadership and pastoral care of a small group of Christians, most of whom are new to the faith. Peter embraces his calling as a leader in the church, a calling that will eventually lead to his own martyrdom. In verse 2 of our reading today, we are reminded of of this for Peter. He says, if I can find the right verse here. Well, let me start with verse 1. <laughs> It'll be easier that way. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world as a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock, here we go, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Care for the sheep, care for the people that God has entrusted to you. First of all, perhaps I should spend a little time explaining what these terms that are being used mean. We here um, referred into this section of First Peter, the words elder, uh, which is also defined or translated as presbyter or pastor. Then we have overseers, which um, in the Greek is also a word that we eventually use in the church for bishops. And then we also have shepherd. So let's take a look at these terms. First of all, the elders. The elders are presbyters and pastors, leaders of a group of believers now, we have a professional view of this particular um, style of ministry because that's what we've grown up with. Pastors, elders um, in our churches, in our traditions, have gone on to college and on to seminary. And so they have been educated and they have been um, searched, you know, in a sense, tested, not only academically but spiritually, emotionally, 
and um, they have been proven at least above average. And so when we have those kinds of assessments, um, what we receive are uh, a professional view of professional clergy. But that was not the case in Peter's day because they didn't have colleges, nor did they have seminaries. As a matter of fact, these elders learned from the apostles themselves, who also had not gone to college or to seminary. They had spent three years with their master, their rabbi, Jesus. So they were quite fluent in scripture, and they were quite fluent in their understanding of what Jesus had come here to do. So these elders were apprenticed. That was more of the style or the model of, of ministry. And then after going through this apprenticeship, they became elders where they were left as leaders over a small group of Christians, a local group. This idea of elders was actually adopted from the Jewish faith, from the Jewish model of elders. Jews also had elders, and they oversaw those um, small local groups of fellow Jews. The Christian elders, the ones who were working now alongside of Peter and some of the others, like Silas, these, these Christians were um, put in charge, most likely, of house churches. And so they were local groups of fellow Christians that were meeting in somebody's house. The second term that is used is overseer, and this is also defined as bishop. And so these are terms that were also used by the Jews, at least the overseer. They were assigned to oversee larger groups of believers and perhaps even to oversee a group of elders, a small group of elders. They were to guide them, to counsel them, and to shepherd them as they were in charge of those who were in charge of the smaller groups. One cared for the flock of God by exercising oversight, by watching over them, how they made their plans, how they dealt with crises, how they planned for the future. When I received my first call, I was pastor for youth and family life um, at a church in, in west central Minnesota. And uh, one of the stories that I had heard about a previous pastor that had been there um, years before me uh, was that he used to go and visit the parents and the youth that were seniors in high school. And he took his counseling, his flock, very seriously. So he went and would meet with them, and then he would tell them whether their child should go to college or go to vocational school. And if they were going to go to college, he'd tell them which colleges they should be looking at. He took a very concerted view of making sure that he was finally counseling his, his flock. Not everyone appreciated it, but, you know, he was following what God had called him to do. The third term is shepherd. Shepherd was another term used to care for those in your charge. This was another rich idea that came from Jewish scripture. 
that God had sent his Messiah to shepherd the sheep. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, this is the suffering servant text that Peter draws upon earlier in 1 Peter. He, he says this, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. A good description that Peter alludes to in terms of shepherding the flock. The flock will go astray. And then in Ezekiel 34, 11, this is what Jerem, uh, I'm sorry, that Ezekiel says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search and find my sheep. This is after he has seen the failure of shepherds watching over their sheep. So these are examples that we could speak of shepherding, both in terms of the lostness of the sheep, but also the lostness of the shepherds, that God continually was intervening. But now he has sent the great shepherd of the sheep, Peter says, Jesus Christ. In, uh, in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, after Peter has denied knowing Jesus um, at the trial, at the courtyard of Pilate, right before Jesus' crucifixion, in verses 15 through 19, Peter is restored by Jesus. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said then, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. To shepherd means to care for the sheep, not to abandon them. When the sheep are wayward and when the sheep are at home doing fine, we are to shepherd. And so as Peter develops this idea of shepherding what he is saying then is that jesus the great shepherd of the sheep commissioned him peter as an under shepherd and so now as the church is growing not only numerically but also geographically in this region of asia minor current day turkey as this church is growing today peter is saying that i too like christ now will make under shepherds so that is why he has had these elders apprenticing underneath him so that they can learn from him and that they can continue to be shepherds another quick story about that time in in west western minnesota i remember one of the pastors in our conference which was a geographical region um, was a pastor of a lutheran church in sunberg minnesota and uh, Sunberg is a small town. I think today it's about 100 people. And uh, 
but he had this, um, this big van, uh, which he drove around, and the back window of his van was this placard that was posted on the inside. Uh, so you could read it from the outside. It said, uh, Bishop of Sunberg. <laughs> what he was saying was that he was the overseer for all the Christians in Sunberg because they all went to his church. And as the overseer then, he was developing elders who would then take leadership roles with those members of the church. So if you had 100 people in your church, then you could break those into groups of 10, let's say. And then your elders would watch over those 10 and report back to your overseer. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this model later because I think that this model is an interesting one. First of all, if you remember Martin Luther's um, work on the priesthood of all believers, that we're all priests, this begins to make sense in a day with the changes that we are experiencing. I believe that this idea will be important for us in the future as we continue to look at being a gathered and scattered church. So this is an early lesson now that Peter is, is, um, is beginning to, to speak to his elders about. This is an early lesson in church leadership. He is describing how the elders, the overseers, and the shepherds are to lead this early church, how they are to shepherd it. The first thing he says in verse 2 is, do not lead as if forced, do not lead grudgingly. I can remember when my parents would ask me to do, to do chores around the house, and I would do them grudgingly. Didn't want to do them, but I did them. Peter's saying, don't do that. If you're going to lead it, do it willingly. In, other sense, in another sense, it was like my parents used to say to me when I would do my chores grudgingly. They would say, if you can't do it willingly, then don't do it at all. Which would just make me feel more guilty, right? <laughs> so as a pastor, as an elder, as a shepherd, we are to care for our flock. We are to watch over them willingly. As a matter of fact, I would make the case that as Christians, that we are called to love one another. For, for instance, if you are a pastor and you don't love the flock that God has called you to be in charge of, you've got a problem because you have to love the people that God has placed under your leadership. And I would say the same thing for Christians as we look at developing leadership in the church. Even if, you know, even lay leadership, even though that's different than perhaps the professional leadership, it's the same, the same thing. If we as leaders don't love the people in the church, in the assembly, in the community, then how can we truly be effective? Jesus wants us to love one another, and Peter is reminding us of that, that to be effective we need to lead willingly with love. The second thing that he says here in verse 2 is, do not care for them for what you can gain or get out of it, but care for them because you are eager to serve God. Eager to serve God. 
And that's a helpful distinction because when you are developing in leadership, your call is, is a unique one as a servant of God. Even though you may be serving the people, a, a group of people in your church, a small group leader, a huddle leader, a Bible study leader, even though you may be leading a group of people, you're not serving them ultimately. Ultimately, your service is to God. And so what Peter is saying is when you serve people, serve them as if you are serving God. It's not about what you can get out of your position financially, emotionally, but it's about what you put into your calling. Are you eager to serve God? Do you want to serve God? And can you serve God by serving God's people? The third thing he teaches here in verse 3 about leadership is don't lord it over them. Don't be domineering. But by your good example, lead the flock. Be a role model. A question that a friend, a group of friends asked me years ago that shook me to the core was this question. Do you have a life worth imitating? You see, as Christians, we should have lives worth imitating. And that stopped me cold because that had never crossed my mind before, that what, how I was living, what I was doing was actually reflective of who I am. Do you have a, a life worth imitating? Don't be domineering. Don't lord it over them. But be a good example. Be a role model. This is a question that I think is really important for us, no matter who we're leading, whether it's one of those small groups or whether it's our own family, your children, your grandchildren. This is a question for parents and grandparents. This is a question for employers. How are you leading your people? This is a question for those who are volunteers and servants. How are you leading the people that you serve? Peter then says this, for faithfully shepherding the flock, I love this line, for faithfully shepherding the flock, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You will receive an unfading crown of glory. I love crowns. I mean, I'm not English, but I should have been, right? They've got crowns. So when I think of crowns, I think of all the ways that crowns have been an important part of this Roman culture. When their athletes won competitions, they would get a laurel wreath, a crown upon their head, a crown of branches and leaves, recognizing their accomplishment. When civic benefactors in Rome gave money to support the community, they received a gold crown that they could wear around the community. So crowns were important. I remember how moved I was when I read through Revelation for the first time and the description about all of the kings and queens surrounding the, the crucified and risen Savior Christ, as, as they're surrounding him, they're throwing down their crowns or casting down their crowns. Crowns are an important image. And what Peter is saying to them is faithfully shepherd your flock, for you will receive an unfading crown of glory. 
Now, it doesn't always get translated that way, and um, from my perspective, that's too bad that it doesn't get translated that way. As a matter of fact, if you don't have unfading crown in your Bible, I will give you permission to jot in unfading crown of glory. And this is why I think it's important. What Peter is saying is that Christians would receive an amaranth crown for their faithful shepherding. What is an amaranth crown? An amaranth crown is a crown made of the flowers amaranth. And what was unique about that flower was that it was a bright red flower that never faded. That's where we get this unfading crown of glory. A bright red beautiful crown of amaranth. Contrast that with the image in first chapter in the first chapter of first Peter where he's talking about the brokenness of people, how sin has captured us and how death will end it. He says all people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. This gospel, this good news will endure forever. So contrast that flower that fades with the reward now for faithful shepherding, you will receive a crown of flowers that never fades, that never die. The victory with this crown is certain, for it doesn't depend upon your efforts, but it depends upon Christ's death and resurrection. That is why the crown has been given to you, for you. Peter continues in verse 5. He's instructing these younger men, and today we'd say in women. Younger does not necessarily mean uh, age-wise, but it means that these were people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ who were um, less mature than the apostles, who needed some schooling, some time, some experience. And so there's no reference here to the church, the ecclesia would be the Greek word for, for church. So we know that there are no, um, no congregations, no church buildings, no church gatherings, no assemblies of Christians in these large gatherings like we would have today. They were only scattered church experiences. They were house churches, oikos. And that is how they gathered for worship. That is how they gathered for community. That's how they shared faith with neighbors and friends and family and that's how the church continued to grow and then they did mission together they served together so what peter is telling them is that these younger followers should continue to listen to their elders and the way to do this he says is to clothe yourselves in humility this is a call for mutual humility, like he talked about earlier in First Peter in relationship to slaves and masters and husbands and wives. And then he throws in a proverb, three, uh, chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So be, be humble. Clothe yourselves in humility. Living with humility is 
perhaps our core Christian calling. And it was so unique because the Romans did not regard this as a value. As a matter of fact, the Romans saw this as a lowly slave mentality. If you thought about humility as something, as a value, they looked at you like you were a slave. And so what Peter is telling us is that this slave mentality that the world sees is actually a gift from God to live humbly with one another. He is calling us to live like he described earlier in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, if I can find it here, Dear friends, I warn you as illegal residents, uh, illegal aliens and foreigners, refugees, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Remember, these people were not from here. They had moved here because of persecution. Some of the new, new believers had been from there, but many of them had not been. So what Peter is reminding them and us is the importance of our humility, that we are to consider ourselves as immigrants, as refugees, as those without any status. That is what it means to live with humility. Peter's concluding exhortation or teaching is this. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now this is a reference that is not used anywhere uh, before now in First in Peter. And where you find this used most often, it's used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, but especially in the story of the Exodus. It is the mighty hand of God that delivered the Israel, uh, Israelites out of bondage from Egypt into the wilderness, eventually into the promised land. It is the mighty hand of God that delivers them. It is the mighty hand of God that delivers you. And the mighty hand of God delivers you, not just from Egypt. The mighty hand of God delivers you from bondage of sin. And so what Peter is saying is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because God has delivered you from your sins, humble yourselves. This is not something you do to get God's attention. This is something you do to give thanks to God for what God has already been doing for you. This is what we could refer to as a second exodus. Humility is not something you can achieve. Humility is an outcome of faith. It is an outcome of a deep and abiding faith. To be humbled under God's mighty hand is to accept suffering, not to ask for it. To be humbled under the mighty hand of God is to bless those who insult you and injure you. The image that came to mind as I was reading this, studying this part, was that this is the time of year for political conventions, I guess, right? We had the Democrats last week, we got the Republicans this week. And I was thinking, you know, there's so much 
animosity and, and even hatred and vitriol for each other. And that's inappropriate for us as Christians. So no matter which party you are a part of, you are to love your neighbors who belong to the other party. You are to bless them. And if people insult you, if they ridicule you, if they demean you, if they serve you with injustice, you're not to turn around and get revenge. You're to bless them. You're to bless them. Can you do that? Well, to do that, Peter says, you need to be clear-minded, sober, <laughs> and you need to stay alert. Perhaps one of the first steps that we can do to be clear-minded and to stay alert is to stay off of social media, at least for the next few months. Perhaps the second thing we could do is to watch our alcohol intake. There has been a great increase, and that is very alarming to many um, social, uh, uh, social workers and others who deal with the, uh, the consequences of this. So a couple of ways for you, concrete ways for you to think about staying alert and um, keeping um, clear-minded. So Christ's death and resurrection, Peter says, it is his resurrection that is your firm foundation. Without the resurrection, Peter says, none of this would be here. Well, none of this would be happening. But because of Jesus' resurrection, that is the firm foundation which you can plant your feet upon. You can stand upon that firm foundation that comes to you through the Word of God. Jesus paid the price for you. He died for you. He is the cornerstone of the spiritual temple that he is building. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. You are the living stones. You are called to be a part of that spiritual temple. That means caring for one another in your family, in your friends, in your church, in your community. You are living stones. Are you ready to respond to Jesus' call for your life? Let's sing Cornerstone. Mm -hmm. 